Thank you, Father, for our time together. Thank you, God, for your holy word. Thank you, God, that it is good and it is perfect and it instructs us and give a, gives us profound examples uh, of not just what we should and should not do. That's, that's really not the point. The point is, is the greatness of your glory, your holiness, your majesty, who you are as the great God and creator of all things and how you have lavished your love and your truth upon your people, giving us unspeakable blessings and riches. And Father, I pray that that captivates our minds our hearts, our attention. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's explain why we are in Numbers chapter 13. The reason why we're in Numbers chapter 13 is because in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the author makes a very interesting statement where he talks about that the distance from where the children of Israel are and where the children of Israel needed to be after the Exodus was actually only an 11 days journey. But What you find is, is that it took them 40 years to make it. And so what we're doing is, is we are answering the question, how in the world do you go from an 11 year, or sorry, an 11 day journey to a 40 year escapade? How in the world does it fall into such craziness as that? And so what we're looking at is we're going back to right after the Exodus The children of Israel come out, they receive the law, and now it is time for them to move into the land that God has promised to them. And so we're actually in Numbers chapter 13. Everybody has a Bible, correct? Everybody good? Okay. Anybody need a pen? I'll even give you mine. Smells like me. I don't know if that makes it, probably makes it worth less, right? So, but here's what we've seen so far in Numbers 13. They're on the threshold of the land. You actually find out, let's see here, uh, that you've got the listing from verses 4 to verse 16 of 12 men that are the leaders of their tribes, of each tribe of Israel. So they already have some sort of responsibility. They have an intimate knowledge of what's going on with the people that they are over. They're well known by the people, so they've got a measure of credibility in everything that they're going to say and the report that they're going to bring. And these 12 men are pulled together to go over and to serve as spies into this land. Now remember, in the land is the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites and all those ites, right? All the ites are over there in the promised land. Does anybody know what all the ites have in common? Besides the ites in their in their in, in their designations, anybody know what do they all have in common? What's that? Ishmael's descendants. Some of them are. Uh, some of them could also be the descendants of of Ham and Japheth. What were you gonna say? Descendants of Noah. Yeah, they have all that in common. But there's something specific about the inhabitants of the land. The land's been promised to Abraham. Correct. We're gonna get to the promise of Abraham uh, at the end of the month. We're going to talk about the whole thing of what is the doctrine of election. That's very important because it's very twisted and distorted today. Do we know? They're all, write it down, they're all pagans. That's a big point to understand. They are all pagans. The entire land is filled with pagan idolatry. Vern. Okay, from the period from the Mm-hmm. They all came, yeah, they all came from Noah and his three sons. Exactly. And remember, at that time, Noah's Bible was extremely thin. He didn't have much going on, so everything is going to be an oral tradition that's going to be passed over. 
But what you see is the society blossoms out of them coming off of the ark, even though they had the story. And here's the amazing thing. Do you not think that those societies at that time couldn't look up on the mountain range of Mount Ararat and see the ark there? See, that's the amazing thing is they had no problem with that. But their hearts are so wicked. The fallen condition that we have, our depravity is so bad, I'm really surprised they didn't actually try to take the ark and make it into an altar of some sort to worship. That's how bad it was. So if you read in, like we can do this real quick. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 10, and if you ever want a good study, go through chapter 10 very slowly, and you will find out where all the nations of the world come from. Genesis chapter 10, in verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations The Toledoth is what that's called. Remember, Genesis is divided up in what is called a Toledoth structure. It means generations or descendants. And so it is these descendants here and these descendants here and these descendants here. And it's almost like each one has its own little capsule and story that it's taking. Take your finger, go all the way down to uh, verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Notice how they're categorized. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Shem's line is the line that Israel comes from. That's important to understand. Shem's line. Which means that Ham's line and Japheth's line were something other than Israel. Now pause for a second. I'm going to drop this and then at the end of the month, at the end of the month on a Sunday, we're going to answer this. When we talk about that certain groups are chosen or elected for something, they are not, they are not. You cannot find one verse in the Bible that says this. It is not that some people are chosen and elected to go to heaven and others are not. The Bible never, ever uses those words in that way. It's not mentioned one time in the scriptures. And this is a common view that a lot of people hold. Oh, well, God only chose to save those people and all the rest of these people, he's either going to allow to go to hell or he is going to, here's another fun word, predestine them to go to hell and he receives glory because they burn forever. Ezekiel chapter 18 speaks against that vehemently. It is insane to come to that conclusion, but that's where a lot of people have come at today. When we talk about a choosing or an election of something, we are talking about that someone has been pulled and designated for a purpose, mission, or task that God wants them to fulfill. God has something for them to do. Will they come to faith in Christ along the way? Yeah, probably, hopefully, maybe. But here's one thing to remember. Did Jesus only choose 11? No, he chose 12. And what was his comment about Judas? Have I not chosen you, and one of you is a devil? Think about it. That's how you know it has nothing to do with salvation issues. The apostles, the disciples were chosen for a task. So when we talk about this line here, the line of Shem, the line of Shem was chosen for a reason. They were chosen, they were elected, they were set apart for the purpose of the seed to come about from the promise of Genesis 3.15 of bringing the Messiah into being. This is how God chose to fulfill his plan through this. Does that mean they were saved unsaved? No. 
when you look at this whole idea of Isaac and Ishmael, we get a pretty good sense that Ishmael was a saved person. He believed in Yahweh God. He had responded to the revelation he'd been given. When you deal with, uh, what is it, uh, Jacob and Esau, we have this whole mindset that Esau went to hell when he died. No, Esau was a saved individual. He, he Did he do a lot of despicable, scoundrel, squirrely kind of things? Yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with him. But so did Jacob. Jacob was e- equally as goofy and dirty. He was. But what you find is both of them were believers in Yahweh God. See, this is why it's important for us to not get so caught up on, on the craziness of works, making it contingent upon whether somebody can or cannot go to heaven when they die. It's not based on their performance. It's based on the perfect performance of Christ that solidifies that for them. So when we talk about this and we see verse 21, also to Shem, a good little mark you might want to put there is the Toledoth that would become Israel, the generations that would become Israel. And you can follow them down through there. You might actually recognize uh, some things going on. Let's see here. What else do we find? And it just culminates in verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Why were they separated? Because chronologically, chapter 10 of Genesis comes before, or sorry, comes after what took place in chapter 11 with what happened at Babel. So that's the reason why. So does that help answer that, Laverne? Time frame of when this happened? Um, from the flood to when? I don't know. I'll just be honest with you. I really don't. I'd have to. I'd have to look it up and research it. There seems to be a common consensus that around the time of the Exodus was about 2050, and some people have even said 2550 BC. So somewhere in that range, uh, there are way smarter people that know way more about it than I do. Uh, the problem that we have in trying to determine the history of that, you may know this if you've taken an ancient Near Eastern history class or you remember something from world history about Egypt. Egypt always lied about their defeats. They always covered up whenever they got messed over in some way. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's actually an inscription, man, I, don't, I read this years ago. There's actually an inscription, and maybe you might know more about it, that someone found somewhere where they're going through and they're reading, uh, they're reading some sort of hieroglyphics that have been put on a wall, and people were amazed when they saw it because it talked about the firstborn son of this particular pharaoh, and it said, inscribed in Egyptian, this one was taken by the God of the Hebrews, which was interesting because God killing the firstborn. So... Interesting to see that you have a lot in scripture or you have a lot in time and history that testifies to the validity of the Bible, but nobody wants to talk about it because it just might be real and we might really be responsible and we might be accountable to know God. And because we've denied Jesus and want to do what we want to, we can't do that anymore. And we, we become morally conflicted. So that's the idea. So any other questions about that real quick? Everybody good? Okay, so why are we going back to Numbers chapter 13? The reason why is because the people are getting geared up to go spy out the land. Now, a good question was brought up by Jamie last week. If God's going to provide everything for it, if God's going to sustain them, if God's going to take care of them, if God is going to do what God said he would do in order to make them successful, why in the world would they go spy out the land? What in the world, what in the world are they doing? What conclusion did we come to? Anybody remember? Why would they go if God's going to take care of it all? What's that? To teach them. What else? Say it. To test. 
He's going to teach them a lesson, yes, but he's going to test them. Has God said that the land flows with milk and honey? Yes, in fact, he told them back in Exodus before they were ever released. It's been reiterated three or four times, plainly, that we can see in Scripture. This land is like this. And notice that God is the one who commands, put together the spies. Notice that God goes to great lengths to prove himself that you can trust his word. This is why I constantly say to you guys, unbelief is the enemy of God. Very important to understand. So where we picked up last time was they got into the land, they went around, remember they got the big bushel, the cluster of grapes, the Valley of Eshkol is what it's called, and it actually means cluster, and it was so big that they needed two guys and had it fastened to a pole in order to hang this cluster of grapes in between them. They got pomegranates, they got figs, they're coming back, and we're actually picking up in verse 25 of chapter 13. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, there's how long they were. If you want to mark a time marker, that's how long they were spying out the land, 40 days long. Verse 26, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Here is the evidence of the testimony we're getting ready to give you. Check out these grapes, right? Good stuff. Would would you have liked to have seen that? Anybody ever seen a big cluster of grapes like that? No, no. We usually see, you know, like Aldi grapes. You know, like, yeah, we can eat them, but yeah. But we're talking... Right? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm sitting here thinking. I was like, I wonder what those tasted like. If the Lord blessed them and if the Lord's bringing it to fruition, I want to be part of that, right? Good stuff. So notice you've got two, two steps here that go on. This is important for you to see in verse 26. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, to them and to all the congregation. It's important to understand this. We're going to talk to Moses and Aaron. We're going to talk to leadership first, and then we're going to talk to the congregation. It's a two-step deal. Watch what happens here. Verse 27, thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us, and here it is, it certainly, it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. This is your good report. If you want to write next to that good report, that's very important for you to understand. This is the good report we've gotten. Hey, guys, it's exactly as God said. It's awesome, and look at these grapes, right? It says here, nevertheless, uh uh-oh, verse 28, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, now pay attention to what, how, how they're described. The land is amazing. The people are, number one, strong. And the, what? Cities are what? Fortified and very large. Now pause. Remember what we talked about when they would fortify a city at that time. It wasn't just that your wall was high. It was that your wall was thick. Okay? So you may have had... 20 feet to climb, but you also had 20 or 30 feet to walk across before you could actually get into the city. Smart, smart people. What is the picture they're painting here? People are strong. Cities are huge and fortified. Does it look good? 
Not right now. Notice what's going on here. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, wait a second. Why is that bad? Everybody look back at verse 22. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Why is the Anak situation crazy? Because he was huge. Because Anak was a giant. Because Anak and his descendants wasn't just Anak. We're talking about a whole group of people. I mean, go back to what it says here. We saw the descendants of Anak there. Everybody, his progeny, it is all his family line. They live there. Not only are the people strong, not only are the cities huge and built up with massively strong walls, but Anak is there. And we're all sitting here in the 21st century like, well, I don't care, right? To them at that moment, it is painting a dark picture. There are giants. Shaquille O'Neal's family is going to keep you from your destination. Now, you might say, wait a second, giants, it's kind of weird. It's not so weird. Remember Goliath? Goliath of, what, what was he called in the Bible? Goliath of, he was a Philistine, but Goliath of? Gath, G-A-T-H. The descendants of Gath were all giants. In fact, there were probably some close relation between Gath and Anak, or the Anakim is what they're known in Scripture. We also know the Nephilim. Are we familiar with that? These were the mighty men of renown. They were believed to be giants. In fact, that's how the King James translates back in Genesis 6, giants. Now the question is, wait a second, if God brought the flood and he wiped out the Nephilim, how in the world did the Nephilim make it to the other side of the flood if only eight people were saved? See, these are the things I think about when I'm showering in the morning. How did it, how, how did it make it if the Nephilim are on the other side? Let's keep reading and let's keep that question in our mind. Look at verse 29. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Now pause for just one second. Do you realize what they just did for you and me? If we had a map out, we could sit here and we could plot where the people groups are in their map. In fact, maybe not everybody has a map. But if you look at the map in the back of your Bible, and maybe you have the Exodus route, something like that, something around the Exodus, I don't know. You might be able to see some of these people. There's Ammon, the Ammonites. Deal with that. We know that the Hittites were up in the north eastern side. Remember, they're down here in the region between Moab and Edom, right in there. So what you find is, is, is and maybe my map isn't the good, maybe your map has a little bit more to offer. Sometimes maps can just be fickle when you're specifically looking for something. But what you can find is you can actually take this region and plot it out. Amalek is living in the land near the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, those three groups, are living in the hill country. Now, we don't know where that is because it's very general for us. The Canaanites are living by the sea. Pause. What sea? Could be two possibilities. What is it? Could, could be the Mediterranean or it could be what? 
The Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, could be either one, but they're living close to that. They understood. We may not grasp it now. And notice it says there, and by the side of the, what's that tell you? What's that tell you? What's that clear up for you? No, not just the promised land. What does that clear up for you about where the Canaanites are? Which sea? Dead Sea. Notice that. We just pay attention to the details, and it clears up. Oh, it could be here, could be here. No, 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 no. Take all the details into consideration. We know exactly where they were located at. Now, watch this, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Now, pause. Why? Because what? Because he sees that the people are getting ready to lose their minds. Now, think about it. One of the biggest struggles that we have when studying the Old Testament is we refuse to take off our Wisconsin shoes and put on our sand sand, sand sandals. We don't put our feet in the sandals of the people that are standing there. Now, how many people do we have at this time? Do we know? Probably 2 million people. 2 million people have been coming through the desert on an 11 days journey Coming up to this point, they've just been released from absolute bondage and captivity, slave labor, having to obey commands and orders. Remember, we got to try to make these buildings now without straw, without these types of things. They were commanded, your quota, you got to meet it. Taskmasters, beating them, whipping them. But they always knew they were going to rest at this time. They always knew they were going to sleep at this night. They always knew that they were going to have food from this way. You see what I'm saying? There's a certain security in the slavery that they desire that they missed out on. And it's just like it is for our Christian lives. When God sets us free, we kind of go, okay. And how do we usually try to compensate for how we used to be in our new Christian life? We gravitate towards legalism. Because it's much easier to keep score of how we're doing when we've got rules and regulations to live up to. That's not grace. That's not grace. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is written against legalism. Paul wants nothing to do with it, and he wants us to have nothing to do with it either because it diminishes the freedom that Christ makes available for us. They get out into this wilderness, they are at the base of this mountain, and they hear for themselves firsthand Almighty God speak. Do you realize that the first giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 came from the mouth of God off of the top of the mountain. If you would have sat there and you would have had one of those recorders, you could have went, click, and you could have recorded God's voice. In fact, it was so, has everybody seen that event? Does everybody know that event? Can we turn there real quick? Is that okay? Man, it's a fun event. Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And remember, God, in doing this, is definitely leaving an impression upon his people. He does not want them to forget this moment because when emotions run high, you need something truthful to fall back on. This is a principle for today if it's ever been one. When, 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 when all of a sudden such and such is in the hospital, when a disaster hits, when you don't know how it's going to work, when everything seems hopeless and your emotions are driving you to run and to scatter in a crazy direction, and that is what is definitely leading the charge, you have got to find some way to mentally say stop and grab a hold onto truth. Did Pastor Steve ever teach you guys the faith rest drill? Did he ever teach you guys the faith rest drill? Chuck, did that ever happen? The faith rest life? Okay, 
faith rest drill, that's what I call it. Uh, same thing, faith rest life. We'll have to go over that at some point. It, it, it is a problem-solving, problem-coping mechanism that uses the Word of God to do so. We'll deal with that at some point. But anyway, I'm throwing a lot at you. Exodus 20. Now watch this. Let me see here. Where's a good place to start? Well, let's just start in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words. Now, there it is. God is speaking. He's not just speaking to Moses. Notice that. It's not just we're meeting in the bushes burning, but it's not consumed. It is God now takes center stage before all these people gathered at the base of this mountain, and he audibly speaks forward. Then God spoke all of these words saying, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other Elohim before me. Does everybody remember when we talked about Elohim? Gods, gods, big G God, little G gods, those are actually demons. We see those manifest in idols. When we talk about Baal or Baal, however you say his name, B-A-A-L, when we talk about the Ashtaroth, when we talk about Marduk and all these other characters, uh, the Chinnereth, I think it is, that we see in the Old Testament, these people that all of these other groups, these pagan nations worshipped and bowed down to, it's because they're all manifested from fallen angels. They're actually demons that have manifested themselves in such a way as to lead these people astray, and these are the names that they actually take on to do so. And so notice, you shall have no other Elohim, no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Why? Why should you have nothing of likeness? You mean that picture that we all see where Jesus is spread out like this and he's praying and he's got super white skin and kind of blondish flowing hair It's it's been well taken care of by Vidal Sassoon and, and, and his blue eyes and he's kind of looking up and he's praying and the light shining on him and somewhere this halo came up, which I can't find in Scripture. Why, why should we not do that? Why? 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 Because it's a misrepresentation of whoever he really is. It's, all, it's a false god. We get a picture of who we think Jesus is and we hold on to and we gravitate towards this. I guarantee you, whatever we think Jesus looked like, even if we look at something like the Shroud of Turin that can't even be verified at all, I promise you he doesn't look like that. I promise you it's beyond whatever we fathom. But see, that's easy for us because we like to have pictures and images to gravitate towards. Notice that this commandment right here is saying no, nothing, nothing like that. Now remember, he's talking to Israel coming out of Egypt. Egypt had idols everywhere. Now here's a question. If we're not to have a picture made of God, or even Jesus, which would have been on the scene or on their minds at this time. If we're not to have any of that stuff before them, if they're not to have any of that stuff before them, what is supposed to be the central focal point of their worship then if that's the situation? The ark hasn't been built yet. Ten commandments haven't been etched yet. God himself, what is it? The word. Everything that God says. Every single thing that God says is to be the focal point of our worship. Why? Because it saves us from unbelief every time. Every time. Because it supplies at least the principle to help us get through the hard, difficult situation and to make the difficult choice every time. Every time. His word is to be central. 
And notice it says here, verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your Elohim, am a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In other words, their unbelief had generational consequences. Interesting. Now, why is that? Because if you have a mother or a father who is operating in unbelief, do you think the chances are more likely for your children to operate in unbelief? Absolutely. See, the the Bible, Christianity, is more caught than it is taught. Doctrine's great. Sound doctrine, I'm all about it. Let's stick to the word, amen, praise God. Yes, it is our sure hope. But doctrine goes so far. If it never manifests itself in love, in action, in deeds, none of that stuff right there, it dies on the vine. You have a lot of smart people who can't stand the person that they're fellowshipping with. That's not sound doctrine. That's danger. That's hypocritical. So notice how it moves on here, verse 6. But showing loving, ki- showing loving kindness, that's hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's the idea of his loyal love is what it is. Hesed to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That let, Let's talk about this real quick. That is not saying that you refrain from saying GD, okay? Everybody knows what I mean when I say GD, right? Okay. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying anything that you would dare ascribe his personhood that would in such a way misrepresent his character before people. That is taking him in vain. Why? Because when we say something that God had said, we better say it exactly like he said it. See, this is why this was so important with the prophets. And he says in the law, if you have a prophet that comes to you and even works miracles and then tries to lead you astray, stone him. Why? Because he's saying that he's speaking to you on behalf of me, and I would never tell you to do something like that. He is misrepresenting me. Kill him. Take his life. He has just earned immediate execution because he is misrepresenting my word. Very important. So, uh, see here. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor to do all your work, which goes to show you this word right here for days is the same one we see in Genesis 1. It can't be talking about thousands or millions of years. He's not saying work six millions of years and then rest for a seventh millions of years. That's not what he's saying. Notice it's consistent. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, there's the commentary on it, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Pause. Remember, This is not talking about, the Ten Commandments is not talking about how somebody earns their salvation with God. If I just keep these things, I can earn my salvation. The law is not about that. The law, number one, shows us what sin is because it is perfect and it is good. It's not ever telling us the wrong thing. Number two, it's talking about Israel. Here's how you have fellowship with me. Here's how you walk in my ways. Here's how you walk according to holiness. And if you do so, we will have intimacy together. Moving on here. 
Verse 12, all you kids listen up. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Just write in the word lie there, please, L-I-E. And the reason why I think this is important that we write it in there is because lying seems to be the one acceptable sin that we can all pat each other on the back about. We're okay with lying. Lying is not okay. Lying costs Jesus' life. That's important to understand. All sin leads to death. So you shall not lie. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his Maserati, his ox. Anything that belongs to your neighbor shall not covet any of their stuff. Their stuff ain't your stuff, right? All the people perceived, now watch this, verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. When they heard the voice of God and they saw the flashes of his glory radiating off the mountain, everybody did this. Everybody took a step back. Everybody is captivated. Remember, you are hearing God's voice in this situation. 19, then they said to Moses, I love it, look, speak to us yourself and we will listen. Is that that true? No, we know later on that doesn't happen. But they're emotionally hyped up in the moment. And so this is a conclusion that they're coming to. Moses, speak to us for yourself and we will listen. But, watch this, Let not God speak to us. Why? Look what they say. Or we will what? What does this tell you about the voice of God? The voice of God was so terrifying when God spoke to them. It was so powerful. It shook them to their core. They didn't ever have anything like that happen ever again. To where at that moment, two million people are just being rocked on their foundation. And it's not just the fact that he's speaking, but think about this. He is showing them how to efficiently, perfectly govern themselves and their relationship to him and to one another. And he only used 10 sentences to do it. The government has a lot to learn. Do they not? Think about it. Amen. (laughs) Come on, guys. But think about it. How does God run a society? I got 10 sentences for you. How do we run a society? Good grief, man. How great would it be if you had like a, a ten, even a 10-sentence uh, cap on any bill that you draft? That would be awesome. So notice, Moses, speak to us. We will listen. Don't ever let God speak to us again or we will die. And I love it. I I, I love where Moses comes from in verse 20 because here's the thing. You can tell that Moses has spent time with God. Look what he says. He says, do not be afraid, right? Do not be afraid for God has come in order to what? Stop. He came in order to do what? Think about what he's saying. 
I know right now you're freaked out about God's voice. God has just given you the most holy thing that's ever been said on this earth because it came directly from his mind and it came through his mouth and you have audibly heard it. And it is perfect. But don't be afraid of him. Why? Because let's be honest, Moses wasn't afraid of him. Moses feared him. But Moses had spent time with God to not fear him. And then he tells them up front, the Lord is going to test you. Now think back to when you were in school. Teacher told you Friday before the bell rang, you're going to have a test on Monday over what you just covered. You took note, okay? Unless you were just like the complete skater slacker guy, which is probably me, right? You're going to have a test. Ah, thank you for telling me up front. Everybody hates the pop quiz, don't they? Good grief. My wife was a teacher. Did your students hate the pop quiz? Yeah, <laughs> yes, just solemnly. And she reflects upon many emotions from crazy teenagers that started pouring forth when she said, all right, we're having a pop quiz. What happened? <laughs> Let the air out of everybody, didn't it? Terrible. But notice he lets them know up front. He has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may, important word, look at it, remain Notice, if you've got a reference Bible like I do, I've noticed that my Bible's a little bit different from your guys'. That We have cross-references, but I've also got one that's got certain words marked. I don't know if yours does or not in the NASB. But right there where it says, he may remain, that the fear of him may remain. That word remain, if you look also in the Hebrew, it means that the fear of him would be before you. In other words, everywhere that you step, every direction that you purpose to go, every choice you're going to make, God and his word and who he is always stands as the glasses that come between your vision and your destination. Does that make sense? I think it's in Psalm 18, verse 6, where David says, I have the Lord ever before me. Any choice, decision, direction, whatever it is I'm going to do with my life, or with those around me, it's always through God, because of God, with a reflection of mindfulness of who he is. He has something to say about how I use my personal life, is the idea. So notice here that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not, what? Was God trying to hurt these people? No. God doesn't want them to sin. God wants to keep people from sin because he understands what a difficulty sin is, what a destructing influence sin is. So let's turn back real quick to Numbers 13. We've got just a tiny bit of time. Verse 30. Caleb quiets the people. Why? Because this report is so bad, it rises up emotions. Ever, anybody ever got sudden bad news? How do you respond? Hmm? Denial. Denial. In fact, they even have pamphlets, don't they, at like hospice care and things, the steps to grief? They'll tell you, here's the emotions you're going to go through. I mean, isn't it amazing that they've been able to map it? They don't sit there and pull it from the Bible. They just look at human behavior and they go, this is how fallen people respond in a tragic situation. And denial, what's some other ones? Anger? Bargaining. Oh, but God, if, if you just do this, then I'll do this. God, if you just save me from this situation, I promise I'll come to church forever. All right? 
That's like what I did when I was 12. It's because I didn't want to get spanked. What else? Grief. Notice that all these are emotionally derived. All of them come from the seed of our emotions. When I get bad news, ah, oh, no, I can't believe it. Tears, right? Grief, tissues, and we're overcome. And let me ask you the question. At that moment, are you ready to start making decisions? Never. In fact, you can be guaranteed that 95% of the decisions you make in that emotional state, having heard that horrible news, will end poorly. It was the wrong thing to do. Now, this isn't any different from now. How do people deal with rejection in their life? Drink? Smoke it up? Drugs? One night stands? Let's go to Vegas? Because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know what that means? Sin here. We won't tell anybody. What's, what's legal in, in uh, Reno? Do we know? Prostitution. I think some people try to find resolve in that. I think some people are trying to look for answers and that kind of stuff. I'll tell you one, another dangerous one. Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> some people try to find their emotional appeasement in a gallon of ice cream. What's that? It's a true state. Candy bars, Cokes. I mean, we just get in out of control people. And what do we do? We often rationalize about how we deserve this because this is going on. Well, you just don't know firsthand how I'm handling it. And what do we do? We, we scrape for excuses to sin, to be abusers is what we're looking for. We're looking for validation to cross a threshold that otherwise, if we were thinking soberly, we would never cross it. These people are emotionally riled up. They've already forgot the good report. They've already forgot everything that was going on in verse 27. Milk and honey is out the window. They don't, they're not, you know, if Caleb would have said there, but guys, what's the land filled with? They'd been like big cities and crazy strong people and they're giants. We don't know. And they're losing their minds. Now, here's a question. We can sit here, we can make fun of them and we can think about it all day, but I don't know that we would act any differently. Why? Because it's not just them. They got families. They got kids and grandkids. They have a long lineage. They're just amazed that they're out of Egypt and they can look back and they saw the waters come down on Pharaoh and they're just, they're just amazed they made it out with their life. There were people who never thought they would get out. In fact, they probably had a lot of ancestors who died while trying to make bricks, trying to put together these monuments of idolatry. People who... They had to leave their bones behind and move on. It's an extremely emotional and traumatic situation that they're in. And now we get to this point, and we're supposed to come into this land, and you're telling everybody, it's bad. It's good, like God said, but it's bad, right? Here's the good stuff, and here's the really bad stuff. Try to put it on there. And so Caleb realizes that everybody is getting ready to bust a jugular vein and freak out. So he calms them. Okay, now remember, Caleb is one of the spies. He's seen it firsthand. He's been the head of his tribe, 
Very important. So notice what he says. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Two things I want you to see from this. Let's read it one more time. Now remember, everybody's getting emotionally freaking out. They can feel the sweat coming out of their pores. Everybody's doing the, I got to go to the bathroom dance. I mean, it's, it's serious. Put yourself in the situation. It's tense. Heart's racing. Right? Everybody's starting to realize, oh, man, if we even take a step in this direction, all those people are going to come out and slaughter us. This is not a good situation. What has God done here? Caleb says, hold on, y'all, because he's from Kentucky. <laughs> Quiet down, right? Pay attention to what he says. This is very important. We should by all means, we should by all means, every opportunity possible, this is the direction we should go. Caleb is teaching us a very profound leadership lesson here. We should by all means go up and take possession of it. Not just enter the land, not just set up camp outside on the fringe of it and hope nobody notices. We should go in, we should conquer this place, we should set up shop, we should possess it. It is ours, okay? Strong stuff. And look what he says after that. For we will surely overcome it. Do you think everybody felt like that at that moment? You think after he got done, everybody was like, yeah! Did that happen? They should have. Where is Caleb getting all this confidence from? Not just from God, but what? From his promises. God made a promise, and God is batting a thousand. God is 25 for 25, four million touchdowns, zero interceptions. God hasn't failed them yet. God hasn't let them down. God hasn't bypassed them. God hasn't neglected them. When they were complaining, he even had food fall from the sky and form on the ground. They kind of look like this dewy, weird substance. He even had Moses go up and strike a rock in water poured out of it. He even had quail show up all of a sudden because they got tired of the manna that they were eating. How gracious. How many of us would have been like, shut up, y'all, and just eat what you got? I'm sure we're like that with our kids after a while. It's like, dude, you got a Happy Meal? Calm down. Does everybody see how gracious he is? Notice that Caleb's paying attention. Caleb's getting it. Caleb is not letting the emotions of the situation overcome him and cause him to go, nobody can do anything about this. Let's just all fall down and die. Let's turn around and go back to Egypt. Notice he's not looking to abandon ship. Notice, this is important for those of you that are leaders, think about this. Notice that in uncertain times, Caleb is giving clear direction. But what about, but what about, but what about, stop, time out. Everybody just take an emotional time out. We should go into this land. We should take this land. We are going to possess this land. We can overcome it, period. That's what we're doing. That's how it needs to happen. That's where we need to be. All this emotional turmoil, all of this tension, all of this infighting that's going to start breaking out because of opposing opinions. I love that Caleb wasn't scared of what other people might think and stood up and spoke the truth. He didn't let peer pressure eclipse the opportunity. Get this. 
important. Because when you deal with everyone losing their minds, whether it's here at church, whether it's at your job, whether it's within your family, and they are emotionally driven to not just do the wrong thing, but to do stupid things that make no possible sense if they were thinking clearly, they need someone to stand in that gap and to get their attention and to refocus them on the thing that really matters. This is what's going on. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going, period. That's it. Caleb's mind has not changed. Caleb's about it. You're going to have a kid? Caleb's a darn good name. Now, sadly, because of time, we have to stop here. But we will pick up next week, and I'm excited about it. And we will pick up again in verse 30 and move forward. Let's pray. Father, I ask, please, God, when uncertain times come our way, when we are overcome with tension and emotion, and when we feel, Lord, that there's no hope, when we see no end in sight, when all light has been sucked out of our situation. Father, give us a mind. Provoke us with your spirit to fall back on your word. It is living. It does not change. It is sure. It is certain. Father, keep us from unbelief. You alone are God. You alone set the standard. Thank you, Father, for this lesson. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.